0: You know, keeping up with what's going on in the world can sometimes feel like it's more trouble than
1: it's worth. The news can be scary and make you want to scream, or there's just simply too much out there to keep up with. But that's why there's the Assorted Goods podcast.
0: It's the amateur's guide to world events, where each episode we take a closer look at a collection
1: of stories that slip through the cracks of the regular news cycle. So find Assorted Goods on whatever podcast app you use and join me in my attempts to learn a little more about the world one story at a time it's informally called the apocalypse trilogy three films all made with bleak endings each addressing different threats to our reality all of which emanate from a broader Lovecraftian inspired notion of cosmic horror that's where an outside entity threatens mankind's very existence while simultaneously showing him his insignificance and frailty when compared to the cosmos at large. While all of them are rooted in this logic, it's the final film, In the Mouth of Madness, that is an open homage to Lovecraft-inspired stories. You know, author Mark Harrison so succinctly broke down the Carpenter Apocalypse Trilogy in a 2016 article he had penned for the Den of Geek website. It's all I can do to just crib from him with great gusto. Seriously, go read the article. It's a fantastic breakdown of John Carpenter's work. The three films all contend with destruction. In The Thing, we are focused on the destruction and the loss of the individual, Or just one's identity, consumed by an alien force that replicates and replaces everything that was once us. In Prince of Darkness, the middle chapter, it addresses the destruction of God, or at least in the way mankind thinks they have come to know him over the centuries, with modern science being utilized by religious organizations to pull back the veil and see the larger more monstrous powers at work behind the scenes. This all just serves to set the table for the final installment, where In the Mouth of Madness addresses the destruction of known reality itself, guided by our own ignorant willingness to invite eldritch horrors and chaos into the door. All of them are fantastic in their own right, but to me, these all show a master filmmaker and writer even though he only technically wrote two of the three works, at the height of his powers in creating benchmarks in the genre. And it will be studied over the years to come. And hey, to boot, they're all wildly entertaining. So, with all that being said, I hope you'll join us for the next three weeks, as I Saw It on Linden Street explores these amazing films, the Apocalypse Trilogy. I Saw It On Linden Street Hello, and welcome to I Saw It On Linden Street the show dedicated to the joy of finding and appreciation in cult films, exploitation oddities, beloved classics, and all points in between. I'm your host, Chris Roberts, inviting you to join us here at the Linden Street Cinema Experience Theater as we once again dig up a fun cinematic relic from the past. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. This isn't your standard film review. Rather, it's a synopsis of a film that we feel deserves to have another inspection, with some background thrown in on the actors, you know, interesting facts about the director, and perhaps if I'm doing my job right, you'll get an amusing story or two out of me. Fair be warned, while we don't cover all aspects of plot, we do discuss endings and spoilers. So if you'd like to be surprised, please give the film a viewing before you listen to us. If you like us, and I would hope that you do, please recommend this podcast to a friend and give us a favorable review. This week, we are continuing this month's theme, A Simple Carpenter. That's our selection of some of the greatest films of director John Carpenter's career. This week, we are covering the 1982 exercise in paranoid horror with our selection of The Thing. Join us! As I mentioned before, I carved through John Carpenter's filmography when I was in high school, stealing my father's blockbuster card and renting everything I could get my hands on. I distinctly remember renting the thing in November because I was off of school for Thanksgiving and I was staying up late to view it. To say I was blown away would be an understatement. I got up the next morning, I immediately returned the film even further dating me here, I drove to the mall to go to the local Suncoast video, where I promptly shelled out cash to get my own copy of the film. I then proceeded to force my brother, my friends, to all sit down and watch it. And everyone who saw it really enjoyed it. And even of all people, my mother found it to be entertaining, although she would tell me it's a little on the gross side. Hey, that's a testament to the power and the craft of this film. So. Let's start from the start. The Thing is based on a novella entitled Who Goes There, which was published in 1938 by John W. Campbell, Jr. He was a gifted American science fiction author, although he's a very problematic human being. Uh, Campbell was ahead of the curve when it came uh, to science fiction and was noted as being a reinvigorating force to the actual genre. In the 30s and 40s, he had a clear influence on contemporaries, which include Asimov, Anderson, Moorcock, Uh, and at the same time, though, he was a segregationist, a racist, and he was heavily into pseudoscience. And here, this really paints it for you. He's an early adopter of L. Ron Hubbard's Dianetics, even back in 1949, which would go on to become a springboard for Scientology. So the man's personal opinions aside... Who Goes There is this gripping and well-crafted story about a scientific research team that's stationed in the Antarctic at a research base, and they discover an alien spaceship buried in the ice, seemingly having been there for a period of millions of years. They end up retrieving a frozen alien pilot that they find next to the ship, and they start to thaw it out, only to find it was merely in a state of suspended animation, And to their horror, it can assume the shape, memories, and personality of any being it consumes. So the creature starts by consuming a man and a sled dog, and then it begins to quietly spread throughout the base. And the remaining men struggle to devise a way to determine who's really human and halt the entity as it takes over. It's gripping, it's smartly written, and it really plays to paranoia. Several of the character names were ended up being used in the 1982 film, although I must say in the novella, almost half of the people in the story are assimilated by the end of the tale. Interestingly, in Campbell's story, the thing itself does have an actual base form that it will revert to. It's true form. It has three eyes, a bunch of wriggling tentacles that seem to act as hair, and it also has telepathic abilities. The last part always seemed a bit too much for me. I'm actually glad they left it out of subsequent adaptations. But the action all ends with meteorologist McCready saving the day and destroying what's left of the creature with a blowtorch. So, a scant 13 years after being published, Who Goes There was adapted into a screenplay by Charles Letterer to be used in a Howard Hawks production with director Christian Nyby at the helm. With a very 50s aesthetic, the film is relocated to the Alaskan Arctic, with good old god-fearing anti-communist United States Air Force members doing a little exploring up in the north. It's there that a scientific team discovers an unusual aircraft and what appears to be a frozen pilot, so they radio for the Air Force to assist them, and a group of men take off in a transport plane to a remote outpost to help with the investigation. In true silly fashion, the creature is found and accidentally thawed out by a careless airman who ends up covering the frozen body with an electric blanket that he doesn't know is on. And that unleashes the very menacing, the very disturbing thing from another world. Who happens to be a vegetable-based life form? (laughs) Seriously, I've read many articles that refer to it as a space carrot. So the creature wakes up and it runs out into the storm, and it gets attacked by the outpost dogs and loses an arm in the process. And that's how the team learns of its true origins. One of the scientists, of course, has to be, you know, conniving and evil. He wants to help the creature, study it, keep it alive. And the creature ends up locking itself in the greenhouse, where it begins to exit and attack and feed on the blood of some of the outpost dogs, and then a few of the airmen. The remaining men take it upon themselves to combat the creature, setting it on fire, which does indeed hurt it, but the menace actually ends up extinguishing the flames on its body by heading out into the snow. They're finally able to slay the enemy by electrocuting it with a trap that they set in the generator building. The creature looks really awful, and I don't mean awful like menacing, I just mean cheesy. It's a clawed, bald guy in a black jumpsuit, sort of a low-rent Frankenstein monster at best. The effects are rather laughable. The story doesn't really follow the source material, and yet, it was a box office hit for the year. Now, don't get me wrong, it's a fun movie to see, you should see it, but here, clearly it's no Shakespeare. Side door, you get out that way. Captain, we can get to it from here through the generator room. You two go with him. You mean you want us to go here? seal the door with lumber, oil drums, anything you can buy. That's better. Easy now, Get me time to get there. I don't want a picture. You get back with the rest. Don't be silly. <laughs> That'll cost you drinks, guy. In the 1970s, David Foster and Lawrence Tourman were producers at Universal Studios. They were both fans of Campbell's original story, and while they enjoyed the 1951 film, they felt it was perfect for a remake that would be closer to the source material, and they began to lobby to buy the rights for the story itself to remake the film. In short order, they discovered that writer-producer William Stark had already bought the rights to the story off of RKO Studios stark was a rather shrewd chap he had this real knack for looking back at films of the 1940s and 50s and seeing properties that could be revamped and remade a case in point he's the one responsible for getting the remake of the cat people from the 1980s the one that has malcolm mcdowell natasha kinsky john Hurd. definitely going to be a future episode one day he's the one that got that all rolling and he made a mint off of it Stark, of course, agrees to give Universal Studios access to remake the film. And he, of course, in trade, gets to come on board as an executive producer, but no matter, that's easy. So now all that has to be done is they need to find a competent director and someone who can completely rewrite the script. At the time, the young up-and-coming producer Stuart Cohen brought up the fact that he went to film school with this really sharp guy, John Carpenter. And in 1976, they approached John Carpenter to get involved with this film. It initially doesn't work for two reasons. Carpenter was already involved in another project, but more importantly, he was not viewed by Universal as a good pick by the studio brass. This guy makes independent features. We don't want anyone who hasn't done big budget work before. Yeah, real short-sighted. So Universal pitches the project to director Toby Hooper, which is ironic, because he was an independent guy who they just put under contract, but hey, let's not get too into the weeds on that. Hooper makes a stab at getting his own version of what the thing would have been, and Universal is not happy with it. While all this is going down, two more things happen. In 1978, Halloween is released and Carpenter is no longer looked at as this guy who is just, quote-unquote, lucky. It's a rousing success. The next thing that happens is the following year, 1979, Ridley Scott's Alien is released, and Universal is smelling money, because they realize they need to get this project they have about a horror film starring an alien back on track to get their own sci-fi movie out there. The problem they encounter, of all things, is Carpenter isn't actually sure that he wants to do it, he actually likes the Nibie Hawks original film, and he doesn't really know if he could surpass it. Kids, this is why you don't do drugs. Thankfully, Carpenter decides to press on and puts together a crew to get the film at least started. Now, several folks have had a crack at getting the script hammered into place, but Foster and Turman with Carpenter's Blessing, reach out to Bill Lancaster, son of legendary actor Burt Lancaster, who at the time was hot off of writing the sports comedy The Bad News Bears. It's a somewhat odd follow-up project, but hey, out of all the writers they had tried or considered before, Lancaster had read and actually understood the Campbell story. He liked it, and he ran with the ever-evolving nature of the creature. He pared down the cast of characters, he set the action in the present, as opposed to how the Campbell story is written in a, as a narrated flashback, and he ended up changing the character of McCready to being a tough ex-Vietnam helicopter pilot, a hard-drinking loner who came there to get the job done. Lancaster also gave the film some of its best action, with the various transformation scenes, as the novella would just refer to the action as, "...somehow, at some point, somebody changed." Here we're getting great reveal action scenes. Case in point, the Norris heart attack reveal. That's all Lancaster, and it's great. So let's do this, let's dovetail into casting. Carpenter himself was quoted in saying that having 12 people is just too big of a cast. And he may have a point, at least from a filming perspective, but... With the concept where you have to put a group of people in a very limited space, one has to consider that all of them are very important roles in this film about paranoia and distrust. The cast here is indeed fantastic. You have a nice mix of well-known film character actors and stage actors who get assembled to be this motley crew at a remote research base. Keith David ended up beating out Carl Weathers, Bernie Casey, and Isaac Hayes to secure the role of Childs. Wilford Brimley was selected for the role of Blair, the competent biologist who ends up having a complete breakdown. Richard Mauser, David Clennon, T.K. Carter, Donald Moffat, Thomas G. Waits, Peter Maloney, Joe Polis, Charles hallahan they all came on board fairly early in the process. Brian Dennehy was thought to be the shoe-in for the role of Doc Copper, but Carpenter made a last-minute decision to recast Richard Dysart as the role. I, I love Richard Dysart, but man, when I think back on it could have been Dennehy, the mind boggles. It was actually the character of McCready that was the last person to be cast. See, Carpenter didn't want to immediately go with Kurt Russell, which is kind of funny because A, he had been working with Kurt Russell on previous projects, and B, he was talking to Kurt Russell this entire time, kind of like using him as a sounding board to bounce ideas off of him. But basically, they were friends, and Carpenter ended up knowing that Russell wasn't going to complain when they were shooting out in the middle of nowhere in the Arctic. He was basically this down-to-earth meat-and-potatoes guy of, yeah, let's get it done. The studio, though, they wanted a star. They wanted Christopher Walken, Nick Nolte, Sam Shepard, and Jeff Bridges. And thankfully, all of them were either unavailable or unwilling to take the role, which then allowed Carpenter to step in and say, I'm taking Kurt Russell. And, of course, I I can't do this. The real star of the film is Jed. Jed is the hybrid wolf-dog. Uh, He's a wolf mix with Alaskan Malamute. Uh, He ended up working steadily throughout the 80s and 90s. If you were a kid and you saw the movie Never Cry Wolf or The Journey of Natty Gann, it's it's Jed who's the real star. Um, They also did White Fang in the early 90s, and Jed plays the wonderful, wonderful creepy dog that brings the whole story together in the beginning. So great, great role, great character. And the fact that it's an animal actor always makes me happy. So, one important note, there are no women in this story. Indeed, Carpenter had initially bragged that for a long stretch there were no women on set, and he kind of joked about it, and he played off the lack of inclusion as, you know, well, it was my version of not muddying the project with any sort of romantic entanglements, either on or off screen. Maybe, but hey, save for the feminine voice of McCready's chess video game, which was provided by Carpenter's then-wife, Adrienne Barbeau, this is a hyper-masculine project. It's sort of like an adult version of the old R-Gang, you know, He-Man Woman's Haters Club, you know? Actor Joel Polis described filming thusly, I mean, you had 60 little boys, we had a helicopter, we had flamethrowers and guns, and we had monsters. We're up in the Arctic. It was a gas, man. It was like going out and playing cops and robbers when you were a kid. Polis is partially right. The initial photography on the thing did start in August of 1981, up in Juneau, Alaska, and it was subsequently moved to Stewart, British Columbia, Still far north enough for the cameras to completely have trouble running. The crew filmed on the Salmon Glacier, and the temperatures would indeed drop so much that the lenses would freeze and break. Or even worse, the transition between being stored in a warm building and then brought outside, they would fog over, and then that would delay because they'd have to wait for the lenses to clear. Snowstorms would further delay the shots and rack up lots of expense and balloon the budget. So, on that note, the project itself was initially budgeted for $10 million, with a shooting schedule of almost 100 days. And while that's a little pricey out of the gate... That at least accounted for the sets and all the scenes to be shot. And the logic was the creature effects would be very practical and would cost no more than $200,000. But they both made the mistake and the genius decision to hire design artist Rob Botine. And the problem is, Botine was a fan of the story and he understood the project. And he pulled Carpenter aside, and he told him, we can do this right. We can make a creature that changes and transforms in the harsh, hard light of a lit room. And Carpenter himself was rather skeptical about all this, because in his mind, they were dealing with a single creature form, that is, when he wasn't looking like somebody else. But he trusted Rob and he noted in an interview that he gave in March of 82 that Rob just burst into his office and said, we can pull this off. You're going to have to trust me, but we can pull this off. It's going to kill you. It's going to give you heartache. You're going to hate me after a while, but we can do it. And it's because of this concept, we have a creature that can look like anything because it's the thing. There are no limits here and anything is possible. Possible, yes, but not on a $200,000 budget. By the time all was said and done, the special effects budget on The Thing had grown from that initial $200,000 mark to $1.5 million, and I personally would argue it was worth every penny. Rob Bottin was concerned with all the money that they were putting into this, and he was very, very worried that all of his work would be sidelined because the MPAA would step in and would try to get them to cut or censor all of the gore and viscera that they were working with. So Bottin shrewdly, as a workaround, decided he was going to craft a lot of the internal workings of the various things with really garish colors. He used a lot of fluorescent oranges and greens to offset what would be considered blood. Creamed corn, microwave bubblegum, jello, wax, mayonnaise, and drums of KY Jelly were all utilized to make these disturbingly oozy transformations. Botine had a large crew of special effects artists, he had 35 people working on the set, and he even called in some favors from friends. During the infamous dog kennel scene, it's the great Stan Winston himself who's helping operate one of those monstrous puppets from below. They constructed a full-size Blair monster for the final confrontation, and it required more than 50 people to operate the gigantic puppet. But to give it even more character and articulation, these scenes were cross-edited with miniature model work, blending the action of this gigantic monster with a stop-motion effect. Carpenter himself didn't much care for the stop-motion work, which is a shame because I actually think it looks fantastic, but he ended up going to the studio to grovel for an extra $100,000 just to help finish shooting the scene and then splice it with that gigantic rod puppet. Now, to offset all of this, Carpenter ended up trying to cut corners where he could to save money and bring things back under a more reasonable budget. He used the remains of the blown-up outpost for the American set to double as the burnt-down Norwegian base. Now, unfortunately, there are some interesting scenes that would have actually had more Thing action, and they all had to be scrapped because they just couldn't afford to shoot them. But what we have left here is amazing, and it's quite serviceable for the entire story. So again, Carpenter had to beg, borrow, and steal money to get every shot he could. And in the end, a film that had already been budgeted for $10 million was now going to at least cost out of the gate $12.4 million. Probably the only part of this production that makes me pause and scratch my head in confusion since he was doing a studio film, Carpenter had, you know, the gravitas now to reach out and get a real composer. And that's no dig at Carpenter. I love the fact that he self-scores a lot of his films. But in this case, Carpenter went for the brass ring. He reached out and he got Ennio Morricone to compose the score for the thing. That's not the confusing part. Now, if you listen to this show, you've probably picked up that I have a love of Morricone. Go ahead, go see episode three, the Orca episode. I gas on about him. He is amazing. He's scored Oscar winning films. He's done low budget fare. He's done straight up schlock. And the through line is, all of the scores he writes sound amazing. So here's the part that doesn't make sense to me. You have Morricone being hired, and he turns around and he goes, I know what Carpenter likes. He makes a heavily electronic and synthesized score, knowing that that's Carpenter's jam. I mean, yeah, it's good to know what your customer wants, but to me, I don't know, it feels like you hire a master painter and you tell him you want him to come in and paint the walls of your house. Mind you, you're not saying paint me a mural, you just have a bucket of Navajo white paint and you're telling him, you know, make sure you get the corners. Carpenter did like what Morricone did here, but he ended up stripping out a good chunk of the score. He felt silence would build more tension. And he even went out of his way to go back and record a few small sections of his own music to place in the film. Now, I, I say music with a grain of salt. They're actually more just dark-toned chords that he lays under certain parts of the film. I would almost call them more sound effects than anything. Now, perhaps I'm being a little too harsh, because that all being said, the music that is here is still brilliant. It's stripped down, it's menacing, and it does give an impending sense of dread. Here, this is a sample of the main theme to The Thing. It's called Main Theme Desolation. Pretty ominous, huh? And I love this next excerpt. This is the montage music that they use to build up to the confrontation with the creature. It's entitled, Bestiality. Music that is completely fitting for one equipping oneself to go out into an arctic night, strapping guns, flamethrowers, and dynamite across their bodies, and walking into what will be certainly a most dreadful end. But, okay, jeez, you have sat through this and heard me jawjack enough about the prep that led to the thing. Let's get to the trailer. Roll it.
2: tape when I'm finished if none of us make it at least there'll be some kind of record the storm's been hitting us hard now for 48 hours we still have nothing to go on
0: what were they doing flying that low shooting at a dog at us
2: oh, crazy cabin fever who knows Get a hold of somebody. Get a
1: hold of anybody. We've got to report this mess. I doubt if anybody's talked to anybody on this entire continent, and you want me to reach somebody. Looks like something buried under the ice. We've got to just
2: burn these things. You can't burn the find of the century. That's going to win somebody the Nobel
1: Prize. Thousands of years ago, it crashes, and this thing gets thrown out, or crawls out, and it ends up freezing in the ice. This is pure nonsense. doesn't prove a thing. Decree, there is still cellular activity
0: in these bird remains. They're not dead yet. You see, what we're talking about here is an organism
1: that imitates other life forms, and it imitates them perfectly. Every little piece is an individual animal with a built-in desire to protect its own life. So how do we know who's human? If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know if it was really me? Somebody in this camp being what he appears to be. Right now, that may be one or two of us. By spring, it could be all of us. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. Then it's one. There's a storm hitting us in six hours. We're gonna find out who's who.
2: Nobody trusts anybody now.
1: Benny's was right there, Mac. I swear to God, it had a hold of him. That was one of those things out there. trying to imitate him, Gary. You gonna let him give the orders? I mean, he can be one of those things! We're
0: gonna find out who's the
1: on a sled dog fleeing from a Norwegian helicopter across the Antarctic tundra, dodging rifle shots and dropping grenades. The dog runs to Outpost 4, that's an American research base, and immediately runs up to the men spilling out into the snow, curious both at the sound of the approaching helicopter and drawn by the gunshots and explosions. One of the Norwegians exits the helicopter and continues to fire at the dog, accidentally grazing Bennings, as played by Peter Maloney, while the other man fumbles with a grenade that he's dropped and accidentally blows himself up, as well as the helicopter. The dog runs up to Clark, as played by Richard Moser, and as the Norwegian screams at the Americans, trying to warn them that it's indeed not a dog, he levels his rifle and ends up being shot dead by the station commander, Gary, as played by Donald Moffat. Trying to see if the Norwegian base needs help, it's Doc Copper, as played by Richard Dysart, and pilot R.J. McCready, as played by Kurt Russell, who end up flying over to the Norwegian outpost, attempting to beat the impending winter storm that is coming that will effectively cut off all life from the world for the foreseeable next few weeks. Doc and McCready arrive and they find a burnt down horror show. Assorted bodies, frozen corpses, men who've committed suicide, pictures of Norwegian men unearthing large ships from under the ice and posing next to large frozen objects.
2: Maybe they found a fossil. It remains
1: of some animal buried in the ice and they chopped it up. But where is it? Look at this.
0: It up in a hurry. Help me find a shovel, Doc.
1: They decide to return to Outpost 4 with a strange humanoid corpse they found to show to Blair, as played by Wilford Brimley, the Outpost's resident biologist. Blair autopsies the strange creature and notes that Inside, it seems to have normal sets of organs, like one would expect. The entire time, this dog has been wandering the station unobserved, and at the behest of Bennings, Clark ends up placing the dog in one of the kennels with two other sled dogs. It's here that the creature reveals itself, attempting to absorb the other two dogs it's locked in with. The commotion ends up waking the men, who burst in to find what's left of their dogs being absorbed into a misshapen mass. Childs, as played by Keith David, is able to torch the strange creature with a flamethrower before it can grab onto anything else. The remains of the dog mass are brought to Blair, and in front of everyone, he autopsies it to explain what he perceives to be happening.
0: You see, what we're talking about here is an organism that imitates other life forms, and it imitates them perfectly. When this thing attacked our dogs, it tried to digest them, absorb them, and in the process, shape its own cells to imitate them. This, for instance. That's not dog. It's imitation. We got to it before it had time to finish. Finish what? Finish imitating these dogs.
1: Blair keeps digging into the Norwegian data, and he starts to panic. As he watches the invading thing cells assimilate and replicate before his very eyes on slides, he begins to break down the math. If this thing were to get out of Antarctica... In an estimated 27,000 hours, a little more than three years, it would overtake all life on the planet, that being absorbed and replaced by this thing. Radio operator Windows, as played by Thomas G. Waits, discovers to his horror that Bennings is in the process of being absorbed by the thing. The malformed body that Blair had autopsied was not actually dead as they first thought. McCready and the men witness an almost perfect copy of Bennings running out into the snow, yet it's a mutant. They burn it. It's then discovered that almost all of the vehicles have been sabotaged at the outpost. To Clark's horror, the dogs have been killed, and the men return inside to find a cowering windows and a crazed blare destroying the station's radio and all the electronics with a fire
0: axe.
1: He smashed up some of the chop, chop pretty good. Him. Nobody Child, okay. go see if he got oh, to the, the tractor. To Nobody gets in and out of here. Nobody You guys
0: think I break well, most of you don't know what's going on
1: around here. Hold right, on, damn well. I'm sure some of you do. Christ.
2: He got most of the chopper in the tractor. And he's killed the rest of the dogs.
1: Jerry, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, go around to the map room door. Talk to him. From the lamp. You think that thing wanted to be an animal? No dog can make it a thousand miles to the cover. You don't understand? That thing wanted to be us! Still gets out.
0: Imitate everything on the face of the earth! And nothing!
1: Okay, Blair. Come on, man. You don't
2: want to hurt anybody. I'll kill you!
1: Blair is quickly subdued, tranquilized, and locked out in one of the tool sheds. Copper begins to work with Fuchs on a way to come up with a blood test, using blood that is stored only in the medical lab that would be uncontaminated as a baseline. Only Gary would have keys to the lab safe where the blood is stored, which, of course, they then suddenly discover has been sabotaged by someone. Gary protests in anger that he himself did not tamper with the blood, but knowing that none of the men now trust him, he gives his revolver over to MacReady and leaves him in charge. Compounding matters. Fuchs's body is found badly burnt. The men end up speculating that he was attacked and then self-emolliated to avoid being consumed by the creature. The men note that the lights have changed out in McCready's shack. Someone's been out there. So McCready and Nulls end up heading out to investigate the raging snowstorm. Nalls ends up cutting the guideline and heading back inside, claiming that he found some of MacReady's torn clothing and thinks it was MacReady trying to lure him away to assimilate him. MacReady does end up making it back to the outpost, but the men refuse to let him in from the cold. So Mac ends up breaking through the storm room windows, and the men are shocked to find him holding a flamethrower and some dynamite strapped to his person. The stress seems to be just all too much for the chubby Norris as played by Charles Hallahan, and he collapses seemingly having a heart attack in the middle of all of this commotion you asshole you'd have done the same thing don't argue with him where's the rest come on man I'm in it it's cool McCready it's cool man come on yeah, yeah, man, just relax. If anybody touches me, and we go. I'm
0: not breathing. One time to talk.
1: Get him in here and bring the others. Now nobody gets out of my sight. So, you sweethearts are about to have yourselves a little lynching party, huh? Ever occur to the jury that anybody could have got some of my clothes and stuck them up the furnace? We ain't buying that. Quit that bickering over there. Windows, wheel different defibrillator over here. Put some on those panels. You're going to have to sleep sometime, McCready. I'm a real light sleeper, child. anyone tries to wake me... As Copper is trying to start Norris's heart, Norris's chest opens into a gaping maw lined with monstrous teeth, which promptly bites off Copper's arms from the elbow down. Macready burns the quickly shape-shifting form of Norris, but out of sight from the rest of the men, Norris's head begins to slowly separate from the burning torso, pulling itself with tendrils away from the fire. Where it then sprouts spider like legs and eye stalks. It quietly begins to creep away, but Palmer notices it, and McCready burns what's left of Norris's thing. Mac then announces he's going to do a test based on what he's seen with Norris. Windows. Draw a little bit of everybody's blood. We're going to find out who's the thing. Watching Norris in there gave me the idea that maybe every part of him was a whole. Every little piece was an individual animal with a built in desire to protect its own life. You see, when a man bleeds, it's just tissue. My blood from one of you things won't obey when it's attacked. It'll try and survive. Crawl away from a hot needle, say. At this point, Clark has attempted to stop Mac, and Mac shoots him between the eyes. McCready heats a copper wire and presses it into samples of blood collected in petri dishes from everyone in the room. All of them end up passing the test, with the exception of Palmer, whose blood literally leaps out of the dish. Palmer begins to transform while still tied to the other men, violently shaking. He ends up attacking windows, attempting to consume him. McCready is forced to burn the both of them. Now confirming that the four remaining men are all indeed human, Childs is left behind on guard duty, while Gary, Knowles, and McCready head out to the tool shed to check on and test Blair. It would seem that Blair has been rather busy over the last couple of hours. He has physically left the shed, but... They find a construction of elaborate tunnel network that leads to a workshop below, where he's been using the scrap parts from the various broken-down helicopters and machines to construct a small ship for himself. The three end up destroying it. Knowing they must now hunt Blair, they return to the main outpost, which is right about the time that all the lights go out. Childs is gone. The generator has been destroyed.
0: Six hours, it'll be a hundred
1: below in here. Well, that's suicide. Not for that thing. It wants to freeze now. It's got no way out of here. It just wants to go to sleep in the cold until the rescue team finds it. What can we do? What can we do? Whether we make it or not, we can't let the thing freeze again. Mm-hmm. Just warm things up a little around here. McCready talks Nulls and Gary into a noble effort to make a stand and destroy the thing before it can re-enter hibernation. They're all doomed, but at least they can save the planet. The men arm themselves and begin to rig the entire outpost with dynamite. Nulls wanders off into the darkness, and it's implied that he's taken there. Gary has a more direct encounter. As he is setting charges, he turns to find Blair standing inches away from him, and he is promptly killed and dragged off to be absorbed. Realizing he is suddenly alone, MacReady moves to set the charges off, but a gigantic Blair-Dog-Thing hybrid breaks through the ice below him and grabs the detonator. MacReady ends up setting off the charges by hurling lit dynamite and the creature is destroyed as well as the entire base around it. McCready finds himself dazed and exhausted, sitting in the snow while the station burns around him. Out of the darkness, Childs returns, staggering up to him, explaining weakly that he saw Blair running around outside, and he ended up getting lost in the storm, attempting to chase him. McCready acknowledges that he is too tired to really do anything at this point, so when Childs asks him what they should do, MacReady passes him a bottle of scotch and accepts that they're just going to freeze to death together.
2: Fire's got the temperature up all over the camp. Won't last long, though. Neither will we. How will we make it? Maybe we should
1: Worried about me. If we've got any surprises for each other, I don't think we're in much shape to do anything about it. Well,
2: what do we do? Why
1: don't we just wait here for a little while? See what happens. A dark ending for a dark film. Isn't it awesome? Where to even begin? There is so much to unpack here. So, much like the original novella, The dual theme of isolation and paranoia are readily on display here. All of the men in such tight proximity, in spite of the cold, are very isolated from one another. With few exceptions, nobody seems to actually be friends here. They all spend their time seemingly being alone together, each pursuing their own passions, separated from the other men. Nothing bonds them. Hell, McCready himself takes his own isolation to a new level. He doesn't even stay in the main outpost with the rest of the men. His quarters are out in the elevated pilot shack, further separated from the one communal sense of humanity. Before the monster ever even comes calling, it's clear there is an absence of unity with this group. By the time the monster shows its face, it's already amplifying the isolation that previously existed. It doesn't cause it. The thing just makes everybody see how alone they truly are. It's ironic. The only way to stop the thing is to work together, and yet being together potentially makes one a target, and therefore paranoia and a desire to isolate, provided the Thing the opportunity to assimilate members of Outpost 4 one by one. This is not just a simple example of an outside threat coming to call. As Blair's model predicts, the apocalypse that the Thing can unleash is not just a possibility here. It's mathematically probable. And that just increases the panic and mistrust. Let me just take a second to say, this is an amazing cast. I think Russell is fantastic, and likewise, Keith David really gets some shining moments here. But the guy who gets to really have the fun, gets to chew the scenery, and enjoy a wild character arc, that's Wilford Brimley. I love how Brimley plays Blair with a low-level feeling of arrogance, quickly melts into paranoia and then devolves into terror, leading to a full break with reality. What makes it so good? Blair isn't wrong. Even in the midst of his breakdown and rampage, everything he is shouting at the men makes total sense. When he ends up warning McCready that he needs to watch Clark, it's for good reason. Clark, on camera, has spent the most time with the Thing Dog, and at least from the point of view of the audience, it's both a red herring as well as being logical. Now, some folks have claimed that Blair himself gets infected during the various autopsy scenes where he's dealing with the Things, you know, where he's looking at what they've burnt and encountered, but I'm of the opinion that he has been assimilated much later in the story, It makes sense. He's the perfect sitting target out there alone in the tool shed in isolation. And you know, feeding into that, I love the scene when Mac goes to check on him and nothing about Blair's demeanor actually matches his situation. Mac comes in to find a jovial, smiling Blair who's eating and actively asking to come back inside and join the others. Even though in the background there's a noose and a stool set up clearly indicating that pre-thing Blair had some definitive other plans he just didn't get to enact them in time
0: Blair have you seen Fuchs? I don't want to stay out here anymore I want to come back inside
1: Funny things. I hear funny things out here. Did you come across fukes? It ain't fukes. It ain't fukes.
0: I'm not gonna harm anybody, and there's nothing wrong with me. And if there was, I'm all better now. I'd like to come back inside. Now you got my promise. We'll see. Hey, wait a minute. Wait a minute, man. I want to come back inside, don't you understand it? I'm alright, I'm much better, and I won't harm anybody. You've got to let me come back inside.
1: As we mentioned at the top of the episode, per the Harrison quote, the thing at its root is a meditation on the loss of the self, the replacement of the individual. Adding to the terror and confusion, the men who are absorbed by the thing, they may not even know they themselves are an imitation. That is, until the thing who is piloting their replicated form decides to reveal itself and take control. It's a complete, terrifying loss.
2: So how do we know who's human? If I was an imitation, a perfect imitation, how would you know if it was really me?
1: Carpenter has gone on record to say that he and members of the cast and crew have had long conversations wrestling with the question of the character's actual ability to be aware of their own assimilation. Would one remember if they have been res- you know, absorbed by the thing? In his commentary on the film, he states that they couldn't come to any definitive conclusion, so the actors ended up playing it off as if the characters themselves wouldn't know, which to them lent an additional layer of horror to truly not knowing if they themselves were even human. Losing the ability to define for themselves what it means to be human. As the author Heather Addison so eloquently stated, it reveals the tenuousness of our bodies, our identities, our social bonds, forcing us to confront our deepest fears about human frailty. None of the other adaptations of the original story, and perhaps few other horror movies, can claim to offer such an all-encompassing apocalyptic vision. In Carpenter's film, we don't just lose the world, we lose ourselves. Now, I know we covered some of it before we started discussing the plot, but I feel one of the real reasons this film is so revered today stems from the wonderful, practical special effects wizardry of Rob Bottin. For the most part, 95% of it, at least what you see here, holds up today. Claymation work aside, truly this film is more dated by the technology it portrays at this point than anything else. See, case in point, all of the crazy out-of-the-box thinking that was brought in to shoot that infamous chest-mouth sequence. Actor Charles Halloran was laying down underneath the table with just his head revealed, and then a completely made replica of his torso was showing on top of the actual gurney. When they first came in to shoot the scene, actor Richard Dysart walked up to Charles Halloran, at this point looking at his chest and stomach, and said, Oh man, I don't want to see that poking fun at him until he realized it was an actual dummy he was addressing. To complete the effect of the actual arm bite, Dysart ended up filming the scene where he plunges his hands into the quote-unquote mouth, and then the camera cuts to look into the maw itself. Then, off screen, we cut to Dysart's face. When the mouth closes on the character Copper's arms, those obviously fake limbs, the crew then cut to a man who was an actual double amputee who is fitted with a dock Copper mask, and the pull-away shot shows him stumbling back, giving the gruesome effect that looks like a million grizzly dollars of showing a man who has just lost both of his limbs. So, how was this film, this wonderful, now-beloved film, received when it made its debut on June 25, 1982? Saying that it was terribly received would be nice. Carpenter over the years has speculated on several problems the film had back in the day citing that he understood the audience would be turned off by the uncertainty of the ending, I would argue if you're thick, and he acknowledged it is a downer. Also, June 25th, 1982 was just two weeks shy of the release of Steven Spielberg's E.T. The Extraterrestrial, and it was still packing them in at the box office when The Thing decided to make its debut, as was Toby Hooper's Poltergeist. Now, The Thing did end up making $19 million against its $15 million budget. But as a studio film, they ended up sinking in about $40 million in total just to promote The Thing. So, this level of talent, this director, something was wrong. Carpenter can see what he wants about audiences not connecting, wanting an E.T. store of film, but analysis over the years has consistently steered to one strong conclusion. The success, or more likely the failure of the thing, stem from sabotage by critics of the day. Now, I fully admit, bad reviews happen. Sometimes they are without merit. Sometimes they offer very valid points of constructive criticism, but this was, for the day, a cultural hatchet job perpetrated by the old vanguard, taking out poison pens to attack the film while simultaneously complaining that it wasn't like other films surrounding it, i.e. E.T. and Poltergeist. Vincent Canby of the New York Times had plenty to say about it. The Thing is a virtual, storyless feature, composed of laboratory-concocted special effects, with actors used merely as props to be hacked, slashed, disemboweled, and decapitated. It's a foolish, depressing, overproduced movie, the direction is without energy, the narrative plods in circles, and the writing has no great style, and the fill is too phony to even be disgusting. Desmond Ryan of the Philadelphia Inquirer stated, "'This is a monster movie of incredible ferocity and graphic gore that asks no more than the utter passivity of a strong stomached audience. A walk through a slaughterhouse has much of the same point.'" Linda Gross of the LA Times despaired, "'Instead of providing us with love wonder and delight like et does the thing is bereft despairing and nihilistic it's also overpowered by rob botine's visceral and vicious special effects makeup i have to say this one particularly bugs me it's like saying why does this whiskey not taste like tap water Roger Ebert of the Chicago Sun-Times called the film disappointing, citing that it had a lack of plausibility and it had gross out geek show qualities with superficial characterizations. Newsweek quipped that it will put you to sleep with its approach and sabotages all of its drama. Starlog called the film an abomination, a train wreck totally devoid of humanity. Variety claimed that the film lacked an actual sense of dread. There are actually many, many more, but I feel you get the picture. A network of negative reviews that simultaneously compared it to completely different genre pictures that were out at the same time poisoned the well for mainstream audiences, who would have probably taken a chance on an adult modern horror film. Now, one reason for some of this pushback, first, critics themselves like Ebert during this time were waging a cultural war, I'll I'll say, in my opinion, a stupid one, against the prevalence of splatter films during the 80s at the Cineplex. Gore needed to be gore, and they were against it for, let's call it artistic politics. Second... The film was actually ahead of its time, at least for the critics walking in. It's a modern take on a classic story, able to be done with cutting-edge, for the day, effects. So it was a sensory overload for a generation of critics who were used to seeing rubber monster masks. Still, the fallout from all of this was a personal hit to Carpenter's reputation, and he was no longer suddenly the wonder kind. And it caused studios to start to rethink big-budget horror picture releases, so much so that they shifted. They would no longer produce straight horror. Horror comedies actually became the next level and, you know, the norm for the day. Figuring it would be more palatable to audiences to add in comedy instead of gore. And truly, while that's not a bad impulse, there are some amazing horror comedies that came post the thing. It derailed a more serious form of horror as a genre for actually several years to come. Truly. Time heals all wounds, and the arc of history bends ever towards justice. Today, John Carpenter's The Thing is regarded as one of the great cinematic horror pictures of all time. In 1997, the British Film Institute published a short volume, as they are wont to do, on the film itself, where author Anne Bilson praised the film for preserving her faith in movies, referring to it as one of the greatest horror films of all time. She points out, too, that the film's initial failure needs to be chalked up to a generation gap, noting that critics before were, quote, simply too old to appreciate such a cutting-edge film. Today, The Thing regularly appears on best of lists. It has topped the list of 50 scariest movies of all time. It's been ranked as high as fifth on IMDb's best horror films of all time. It has spawned numerous parodies. It's served to inspire multiple filmmakers who saw it. You know, a bunch of no-name artists like... Guillermo del Toro, Neil Blomkamp, J.J. Abrams, John Sayles, Eli Roth, Edgar Wright, and Quentin Tarantino. Showing its place in history... It has been screened along with The Thing from Another World annually now at the Edmundson Scott South Pole Station Base. That's the United States Scientific Research Space located in the southernmost point of Antarctica as a yearly tradition now. People, they like it. People are allowed to have opinions about this film. And hey, Not everyone feels the same way as I do about the thing. That's alright though, because that's exactly why we have such a thing as the sidecar to settle these sorts of things. and joining us today in the sidecar is julia marquesi and terry gamble of the horror movie survival guide and they were kind enough to share their thoughts on the thing so ladies what do you have for us
0: Hey everyone, this is Julia Marchesi. and Terry Gamble, and we are Horror Movie Survival Guide. Yeah, we're happy to hang out with you guys though. Yeah, and uh, we've been asked to say a few words about John Carpenter's The Thing. So The Thing is... <laughs> uh, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, this movie's great because I think has some of the best special effects in horror... Of all time. Period. It's... it's- Amazing, so creative, mm-hmm. so disturbing, and in our opinion, so beautiful, stunning, the, and groundbreaking.
2: Yes. I feel like so many films have been like derivative and copied what they did in this film.
0: Yes, and you know, you have you know this kind of mid eighties. You have your Tom Savini's and you have your Rick Bakers, and the Rick Robb team just kind of like blew everybody out of the water yeah. with this thing. Next level. This thing. It's just going to be this. <laughs> it's continuous a lot of things. Thing. On. <laughs> um, but I guess for me, as a horror fan, I appreciate effects in. How creative they are. And I feel like how long it took someone to design that and how did you even come up with that. And in this, there's really no, I don't ever see strings being pulled. I don't ever see how it's working. It's right. just beautiful and crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, also, just I uh, love movies that just to kind of take characters locked in one place and make them deal with each other.
2: You have to. We love, I love that, like a, 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 a I don't know, stuck in a cabin or something like that and like having to figure it out and having to get out of a place. It's brilliant. And you have them set in, in the, whether <laughs> The, you, the most remote to go. place in the world <laughs> Yes. like how else are you going to get out of there like you only can get air like an airplane needs to come get you basically
0: there's nothing else you can do and what a scary monster where you have this thing where it's like you don't know if they're your friend or not and there's really heavy. how do you figure that out when you have this monster that can take the form of anyone you know how will you ever really be sure anyone you know and love like yes. what are you going to do um, the great thing about this movie too is I've seen it in the theaters a bunch of times which is a great movie to see in the theaters oh, because yeah. people freak out uh but the the scene that always makes people squirm the most is when they prick their fingers and do the blood test really yes people "Ah," because it's just because it's so real you know what that feels like it's very relatable God,
2: and also probably because you're freaking out because your friend could just like while out on you. A bad move on them being all tied up together. Like (laughs) for that moment though, it's like, uh, that was one of the things I was like, that's probably
0: not like super smart. But when you're in this kind of situations, you got to make do with what you have. Do what you do. Um, I think it's one of the best horror movies of the 80s and generally I am not 100% on the remake train I feel like eh, do something new and exciting but as remakes go this is one of the kind of best ones and I've recently seen the the movie that it's based on which is good mm-hmm. but not do great Do you think this one's better? I do. Nice, I do. So that's a rarity too. Then. It is. I, you know, I will rarely say that a remake is. No, you are always general. like OG, OG, OG. Oh yes, uh, but this one incredible. And uh, the, you know, the sequels that have come out afterwards, uh, you don't really need them. I no. don't think. But how? I mean, honestly,
2: I feel like you couldn't do one based on how it ends. Like do you yes. know what I mean? Though, like it's it feels really definitive. Like. They're fucked. Like, yeah. nothing's going to happen, and that thing's basically going to take over the world soon. Yeah. Because, like, what else can you do? Like, that well, thing is already no, like, there's no way to contain it. Yes. So, uh,
0: a downbeat Julia-type ending. Which... We love a downbeat. Like, <laughs> the world is over. Sorry. Yay, everyone's dead. <laughs> That's the kind of show we like. Hope we spoiled the thing for you guys. Thank you so much That's for listening to us. That's what we do. To- That's what we do. We are spoiler-heavy, but we do go uh, deep dive. So, if you like to listen to about how every minute detail of a horror film works and how you could survive yeah we love tips giving out survival tips many many tips yes many tips
2: this this movie survival rate Um, not good not gonna happen (laughs) sorry about that one but so no tips for you there well the tip is maybe like uh just have make the most of it and get your jameson (laughs) and drink the whiskey Uh uh-huh that would be my tip like if you know it's all over like drink
0: the whiskey and just like stay in the cold that's it so we hope you'll listen to horror movie survival guide thank you so much for listening to us have a great day
1: I have to say, I'm wildly jealous of Julia in the sense that she has gotten to see this film on a big screen which would have been a fantastic experience to see the film with an audience. I'm grateful to you both that you can be bubbly enough to enjoy the downbeat ending like we do here at the LSCE. So thank you Julia and Terry, that was excellent. Now dovetailing on something that both Julia and Terry mentioned, the legacy of The Thing. To date, the film has spawned board games, video game sequels, a limited release comic book that picks up on the further adventures of R.J. McCready, doing battle with the monster as well as official prequels that were released in 2011, which, rather confusingly, they named the prequel film itself The Thing. Now full disclosure, I have to say I don't hate the prequel. In many ways, it was made with a loving commitment to making sure that it would be a worthy progenitor of the 1982 film. Directed by Mathis Van Henningen Jr., it stars Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Joel Edgerton, Ehrlich Thompson, Adwal Kinowe Abjabe, and Eric Christian Olsen. It covers the events that occurred on the Norwegian base, how they discovered the ship and the thing actually locked in the ice, that is, before they thought it and it ran amok. It's very entertaining, and it takes great care to recreate and explain all of the damage and trauma that Mac and Doc end up seeing when they tour the base in the 1982 version of the film. There's axes in the walls, there's locations of corpses, damage to the roof. It's a great eye towards continuity of a story. It's entertaining, but the film doesn't live up to the previous version, mainly due to the heavy use of CGI creatures. The thing, when they show it, it looks flat, fake, and while the transformations are interesting, it ends up looking like so many other computerized monsters of the day. So, again, The 2011 prequel thing, it's worth catching once or twice, but for my money, stick to the 82 version. Curiously, there's been a renewed interest in The Thing, stemming from the discovery of a new manuscript that was found in 2018 in writer John W. Campbell's Notes. You see, the original novella was actually a stripped-down version of an actual novel. And that expanded novel was found, and as of June of 2019, the new expanded story, Frozen Hell, was published, and you can get it today in hardback, paperback, or an e-reader copy. With more story here to play with, as of January 2020, it was announced that a new film is going to be made using frozen hell the complete novel as the basis so we're not done yet seeing the adventures of macready and or the thing i'm cautiously optimistic for my money it doesn't get better than carpenter's version but i'm totally willing to sit through another fun outing with the thing The version of The Thing screened here at the LSCE was the 2003 Collector's Edition DVD. It has since gone out of print, but if you're really hard up to have a copy of the film on DVD, a stripped-down version from 2004 is still available and can be yours for the low price of $7.99. I would say well worth it, but hey, almost all of Carpenter's work now has been available on several really nice Blu-ray editions that have all been put out and are worthy pursuits. Universal put out their own simplified version on Blu-ray of the film and it can still be acquired right now for $9.99 while good old Scream Factory has put out a gorgeous collector's edition version of the film with new commentary and new features as of 2016. And that version is available on Blu-ray for the slow, low price of $23.99, and I would argue it is worth every penny. For those of you outside of the U.S., good old Arrow Video has put out their own special edition of the film in 2017, which one can get if they are in Europe or in the U.K. for $9.84 dollars 84 or roughly 11 euros again all well worth it or hey let's say you're jonesing to get your winter read on you're gonna be stuck inside you don't want to be talking to other people you can pick up a copy of campbell's original story or his newly discovered novel as well both available online for about 15 dollars a pop Now, remember folks, we don't get anything here for suggesting that you buy things, we just feel it's important to continue to support physical media as these companies who own the rights will continue to release the content that we all know and love. And at the end of the day, isn't that all that matters? Besides, in this case, in my humble opinion, you have a fantastic film, a fantastic story, you should absolutely avail yourself to a copy today. So that's going to wrap things up here for this episode of I Saw It on Linden Street. Thank you all for listening. I would like to extend a special thank you again to Julia and Terry of the Horror Movie Survival Guide podcast. Their show is amazing, and it's a fun listen if you enjoy horror films or would just like to know more about them. So please, everybody, support our friends. Go out there, give them a listen. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, wherever podcasts can be had. If you like us, please consider following us on Facebook... At The Linden Street Cinema Experience, and recommend us to friends. Please follow or subscribe to us on the podcast platform of your choice. If you're an Apple user, please, we would greatly appreciate a rating and a review from you. We're also featured on Podchaser. That's a podcast database where listeners and creators alike get to meet and interact. Find us there. Give us a rating and a review if you please. If you want to get in touch with us, make a comment, ask a question, send us wonderful things, please email us at Experience at gmail.com. If you would like to contribute to the show, be more personal, ride in the sidecar, feel free to leave us a voice message by way of Anchor. That's a free and easy app to use. So hey, until next time, this is Chris Roberts asking you, to take care out there and remember, life's too short not to live in the past. Take it easy out there everybody.